This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State House Republicans today unveiled a proposal that would clarify specific parts of Wisconsin's broad 1849 ban on abortion. The bill would allow several routine medical procedures that regularly appear in the course of pregnancy and childbirth. Those include induced labor, C-sections, and removal of ectopic pregnancies, which are always unviable and deadly if untreated. The bill's authors, State Senator Romaine Quinn and Representatives Geg Manfici and Donna Rosar, say the legislation would clarify for medical providers what procedures are legal, reports the Associated Press. Under Wisconsin's 174-year-old abortion ban, providers can only end a pregnancy when the pregnant person's life is in danger. Medical providers say that language has been incredibly vague and have been advocating for increased clarity on what is allowed under the abortion ban. Republicans have previously introduced a separate bill that would allow abortion in cases of rape or incest. The trio introduced several other abortion-related bills today. One would provide state funding for anti-abortion groups and crisis pregnancy centers, places that do not provide abortions and seek to steer women away from them. Under another bill, people could claim tax exemptions for their fetus, and yet another would provide state grants for adoption organizations. Democratic Governor Tony Evers is expected to veto all these bills, saying abortion rights should be restored to what they were under Roe v. Wade. Democrats, led by Attorney General Josh Call, have been attempting to undo Wisconsin's 1849 ban on abortion in the courts. That case, still in Dane County Court, had oral arguments earlier this month and is expected to eventually head to the state Supreme Court. Meanwhile, Wisconsin celebrated its official 175th birthday yesterday. Wisconsin became the 30th state to join the United States on May 29, 1848. While several men served as governors of Wisconsin Territory, which was established in 1836, Wisconsin's first governor after it became a state was Nelson Dewey. The anniversary of his starting his first term is coming up. Dewey took office on June 7, 1848. Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, the state's largest business lobby, says it'll head to court to block new rules regulating surface water pollution, according to wispolitics.com. WMC says it'll go to court if the state's Department of Natural Resources doesn't roll back its newly drafted regulations for surface water, which tightens the allowable limit for pollutants in water. Those pollutants include phosphorus, ammonia, and other runoff from large-scale dairy operations called CAFOs. WMC, along with dairy and paper lobby groups, say the new rules are too costly. So costly, in fact, that they break a state statute that caps the cost of new rules written by the state within a two-year time frame. The state DNR says the rules will cost much less than the WMC and industry groups maintain they will. The draft rule hasn't hasn't yet been formalized. It's expected to head to the Natural Resources Board this fall. Wisconsin's public affairs channel Wisconsin Eye, a state-level version of C-SPAN, could be getting a boost from the state legislature in the upcoming budget. That's after the state's budget writing committee inserted a provision last Thursday that would create a $10 million endowment for the network, reports the Associated Press. Wisconsin Eye is responsible for streaming state-level legislative sessions, hearings, and news conferences. It's currently funded through private fundraising and subscription services for past events. Only live proceedings are available to watch for free with no paywall. The $10 million boost from the legislature would need to be matched one-to-one by other funding sources, and the arrangement would only last through the next two-year budget. 
Wisconsin's next budget is still under deliberation by the state legislature. It's expected to take a few weeks before the full proposed budget heads to the governor for approval or line-item vetoes. An internal complaint filed against Madison Metropolitan School District's head of communications was unsealed by a Dane County judge late last week. In it, seven current and former employees allege a pattern of mistreatment from MMSD top spokesman Tim Lamonts. They allege that Lamont's behavior included screaming at employees, mismanaging resources, and sexist comments about members of the media, and that behavior led to the resignation of several employees in the department. They also allege instances in which Lamont's failed to follow up with local journalists. The complaint also refers to an internal investigation by the school district, which found insufficient evidence. Lamont's told NBC15 that all allegations were thoroughly investigated and found to be not to be without merit. The documents were originally requested by NBC15 last fall. Lamont's then sued the school district to prevent the release of the records, saying the release of the records would result in quote unwarranted, unfair, and irreversible public ridicule and gossip, negative public perception, and jeopardize his ability to credibly perform his duties unquote. Meanwhile, MMSD has in recent years been the subject of several other lawsuits related to the release of public information. Wisconsin's Freedom of Information Council named the school district as this year's No Friend of Openness winner, saying the district has become, quote, notorious for outrageous delays and excuses, prompting multiple lawsuits alleging violations of open records law, unquote. The 95th annual Scripps National Spelling Bee in Maryland kicked off today. Among the 251 spellers competing in the National Spelling Bee is Wisconsin's own Aiden Wajan Kulsaria. A 7th grader at Blessed Sacrament School and a resident of Middleton, he's the only speller Wisconsin is sending to the Spelling Bee this year. This isn't his first time there, he also competed in 2019, coming in tied for 51st place. Wajan Kulsaria won Madison's All-City Spelling Bee for the last two years, reports the Wisconsin State Journal, and he won the statewide Badger Spelling Bee in March. The spelling kicked off today with a preliminary round. Weijan Kulsaria appeared to be still in the running as of this afternoon, spelling the word Bahuvrihi correctly. That is B-A-H-U-V-I... Sorry, B-A-H-U-V-R-I-H-I. The B continues through Thursday for the finals. You can stream it live online at spellingbee.com. Last Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a 5-4 decision that significantly narrows the scope of the Clean Water Act, a landmark piece of environmental protection legislation passed in 1972. The case undoing some of those protection is called Sackett v. EPA. The challenge to the Environmental Protection Agency's regulations was brought by Michael and Chantel Sackett of Idaho, who failed to get a permit for development next to a scenic stretch of pristine water. In the majority opinion, the nation's top court ruled that protections of the Clean Water Act extend only to wetlands that have a significant surface connection with another navigable waterway. That ruling has the potential of opening up many wetlands to development. According to one brief filed by water regulators, the decision stands to exclude more than half of the nation's wetlands from federal protection. For more about the recent ruling means and how it'll impact Wisconsin's many waterways, 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Erin O'Brien. She's the Policy Programs Director with the Wisconsin Wetlands Association, which has condemned the ruling. Ruling, uh, how, does this going to have a significant effect on wetlands in Wisconsin? Well, it's really a time-will-tell question. Right now, the state of Wisconsin's wetland protection rules exceed 
the federal protections, and that, that was prior to the Sackett ruling. Right now in the state of Wisconsin, with some exceptions, and those exceptions are what we should talk about, all wetlands are subject to regulations where development in wetlands requires review and approval and a permit from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Now, there are some relatively small exemptions to those rules that related to wetlands that were not subject to federal protection. And under the prior rule, prior to Sackett, that was a pretty small exemption. And I think we're going to have to wait and see on how the department is going to interpret the new rule and what will now be exempt from protection. I can explain to you what those exemptions are. Yeah, please do. So there's two. The first is for urban wetlands that are less than one acre per parcel not of a rare or high-quality wetland type, and those are things like bogs and fens and floodplain forests and other very high-quality wetlands, and that also that the project also complies with other stormwater uh, and zoning regulations. Also, in rural areas, wetlands that are not federally regulated that are less than three acres per parcel, not of those rare and high-quality types, but also the project must be for building of a structure that has an agricultural purpose, so like a farm road or a barn or some other type of building in an agricultural landscape. And so how many wetlands in Wisconsin fall into those exemption categories? Unfortunately, I can't give you a number. And um, part of the reason is that we don't have complete or accurate wetland mapping in the state. We do have wetland maps. And so there is the ability to guesstimate that. I, unfortunately, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but wetland mapping is sort of historically difficult to get fully accurate, especially for these smaller uh, wetland areas. So I don't really know. I can tell you that overall, the wetlands that are not subject to federal protections in the state of Wisconsin is over a million acres. And so it, it sounds like in Wisconsin, there's some protections that will exist even after the Sackett ruling. Have you had any contact with colleagues or associates in other states who may not have such state statutes in effect? And, and have they given you any indication of what the ruling may mean for protection in wetlands in other states? Well, I haven't spoken to anyone specifically since the ruling, but I'm certainly familiar with the what I would call a patchwork of state protections for wetlands. There are there are other states like Wisconsin that do have protections that exceed even prior federal law, and um, and they're certainly going to help bridge the gap now with some of what's been rolled back under Sackett. But there are other states where their wetland programs are entirely linked to the Federal Clean Water Act. So they basically say if it's protected under federal law, it's protected under state law. And so, you know, in those cases, there's no no backstop. Now, the Supreme Court's using the term uh, a continuous surface connection with a navigable waterway to say that's the extent of uh, federal jurisdiction here. Is that a ecologically sensible term? No. And I guess I want to back up and say, keep in mind, the Clean Water Act was drafted more than 50 years ago, and we've learned a lot in that time on the science of wetlands and the science of hydrology. What we do know is that all waters are connected, wetlands, streams, lakes, rivers, whether they have a permanent surface water connection or not, because, you know, water flows above and below ground. So unfortunately, the case wasn't ruling on sort of the science of wetlands. It was ruling on definitions of what's protected under certain terms waters of the U.S., navigable waters. And in that reading, the court did narrow 
uh, narrow that interpretation. Now, it sounds like the Clean Water Act could use an update. Are there efforts to, to undertake that through Congress? It's a great question, and I, I'm not aware of anything that's been introduced yet. I think a lot of people have been waiting to see what this ruling would bring, but I would imagine and hope and assume that there will be. Um, the court was very clear that they were looking for more clear direction in the statute itself on this definition. So it, at this point, um, if 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 federal protections for wetlands or ephemeral streams, headwater streams are going to be expanded, it will take an act of Congress or, as we've already talked about, actions at the state level. And what is the Wisconsin Wetlands Association doing here to uh, help ensure the protection of all wetlands? Well, I mean, we've been around for longer than the Clean Water Act, so we're going to do the things that we've always done. Obviously, we are interested and involved in the development and implementation of the state's regulatory policy, but we're also doing a lot of other things to ensure that people understand you know, what wetlands are, why they're important, and how they can be put to work for the citizens of the state to solve problems, whether that's improving water quality or uh, reducing the risks of flooding. And so we're really working on both fronts and at the state and local levels trying to make sure that we are taking care of our wetlands so that our wetlands take care of us. And what are some of those benefits? You mentioned some of them in terms of flood control mm-hmm. and, and things like that, but why should people care about what used to be called swampland or wasteland? There's a lot of reasons. At, at their core, the purpose of a wetland is to store and manage water. And um, in the state of Wisconsin, we've lost more than half our wetlands, so um, we have about Uh, 5 million acres or so, maybe a little more than that left, but we used to have about 10 million acres of wetlands. And when you lose that amount of storage, it has consequences for people and nature. And so when, when our landscapes lose the capacity to store and manage water, we have uncontrolled runoff that happens at, you know, we have larger quantities of runoff and runoff that moves more quickly. A lot of the times the loss of that storage is upstream. So you lose storage upstream and it, and that water is displaced downstream and that causes erosion, it causes flooding, it causes damages like roads and culverts blowing out. That set that 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 fast moving water brings sediments and all the pollutants that are attached to it. So it affects the quality of the water in our lakes, rivers and streams. It affects infiltration of groundwater. So that affects our drinking water. It affects um, base flow and our trout streams and on and on and on and on. Um, and, and this is why it's really important for people to understand that all wetlands are connected and that what happens upstream does affect what happens downstream. And we need to be thinking about wetlands and waterways in a watershed context and in the context of what we need them to do for us. All right. We've been speaking with Aaron O'Brien, Policy Programs Director for the Wisconsin Wetlands Association. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT 89.9 FM. Tonight, we're excited to unveil the first segment of a new series this summer. It's called Trail Tuesdays. Each week, WORT contributor Reed Kamai will take you along a nature trail and share its sounds and history. His first stop is on Madison's west side at the Pheasant Branch Conservancy. Let's take a listen. The rustling of tree leaves in the wind. The calls of birds of all kinds. The flow of streams, whether gentle or intense, or even just the stillness of the outside. It's all part of the incredible beauty of Wisconsin nature. 
Spending time in nature has been known to improve our mental and physical health, reduce feelings of loneliness, connect us with the local community, and provide a much-needed escape from the technological impulses that are consuming us the consumers ever more so. With the summer upon us, so too is prime time to explore the state's great nature. I'm Reed Kamai. Join me Tuesdays this summer during WORT's live local news at 6 for Trail Tuesday, as I take you to a new nature site in and around our listening region every week. You will hear the beautiful sounds, find out about the nooks and crannies, and learn about the trail's roles in Wisconsin history. We start at the Pheasant Branch Conservancy in Middleton. This sprawling hotbed of natural beauty is located just north of the westernmost reaches of Lake Mendota. The main entrances to the Conservancy are off Pheasant Branch Road, a hilly road which runs mostly due north and south and connects county highways K and M. There are also entrances behind the stores and apartments on the south edge, as well as one on the east side from a neighborhood. Ownership of the Pheasant Branch Conservancy is split between the city of Middleton, Dane County, and the state of Wisconsin. The county section in the northern part of the conservancy covers about 40% of the property. Wisconsin's Department of Natural Resources controls a strip in the middle, while the southern half belongs to the city. I started my visit in the northern county-controlled portion of Pheasant Branch. From the Springs parking lot, located only just north of the cutoff line between the county and state-owned sections of the conservancy, there are already multiple paths available to take through this large field. The wider gravel path is the beginning of the route to the top of the historic effigy mounds. Interested in the nearly 200-foot climb and the views from atop the mounds, that's where I walked. A few hundred feet into that path, you will reach a three-sided information sign. To the left of that landmark is a grassier and more inclined path. This route encircles the mounds, taking you towards the top. Reeds surround the trail increasingly as you progress, sometimes accompanied by a cricket cacophony. Once you are near the top, the path splits off towards the left and right. It's a lollipop-style path, so continuing in either direction will eventually lead you back to the fork. The views from the top do not disappoint. Looking towards the south, you can see the tree-laden Middleton-owned sector of the park, which we will visit shortly. Views in other directions show the vast present-day farmland that surrounds the Conservancy. The county-owned half, especially the mounds, is where much of the Conservancy's role in history lies. Native Americans controlled the land going back 2,000 years. Deceased bodies were buried at the summit of the effigy mounds, said to be halfway between sea level and the sky, so as to serve as the connection to the upper world that the dead would then enter. Jolene Stinson is the Parks Director for Dane County. She explains that such features as this one are the reason Dane County Parks is careful in its stewardship of its properties, which contain historical roots. Dane County Parks is really fortunate that a number of our properties have cultural features on them, and we as park managers or public land managers always do our best to honor both honor um, the history and respectfully honor the land that these cultural features are on and certainly respect those cultural features. On now to the southern half of the Pheasant Branch Conservancy, the section controlled by the city of Middleton. Prepare yourselves for some incredible natural beauty. The two southernmost parking lots off Pheasant Branch Road serve as gateways to the Middleton portion's trails. I began from the southernmost of those two, where a relatively steep and winding downhill gravel pathway is the inlet to the main trail. Once you reach a fork, a left turn quickly leads you to a deck, which offers a fine view of the wetlands. For now, we will focus on the forest, which is to the right. 
This is where trees line the path, providing general shade with sprinklings of whatever sunshine pokes through the leaves and branches. The birds make their presence known. And at work near a wooden bridge was, appropriately so, a woodpecker. That bridge is part of the four-mile main loop in the south half of the Conservancy. Additionally, there are several other paths that break off from the main one. One appears at a fork shortly after the aforementioned bridge. While turning right keeps you on the loop as you walk by a stream, a left turn takes you through a path with a heavenly view and scent. Here. Mm, a lot of lavender flowers here. It smells really nice. The main loop surrounds the Conservancy's wetlands, which played a crucial role in the 19th century. In 1832, the Ho-Chunk signed a treaty with the United States government which, unbeknownst to the original habitants until it was too late, handed the land's rights to the federal government. That allowed new settlers, many of them German immigrants, to set up in the Pheasant Branch area, where they could take full advantage of the agricultural offerings of the area. Some of the early settlers drained the upstream wetlands and built dams to make it easier to fish and to grow crops in other parts of the space. The Pheasant Branch Conservancy, especially on the southern half, is home to a rich array of wildlife. Aside from the birds heard earlier, owls, foxes, snakes, and even opossums can be found. And as explained by Mark Wegner, the city of Middleton's assistant director for conservancy and forestry, a close eye is kept as well on a pair of eagles. And uh, we have an observation platform that you can watch uh, the nest area from. We're still hoping to get a successful hatch. We haven't yet. They're uh, a young couple of eagles. So they, they're still trying to figure things out. But the last three years, they have come back to the nest every year. And so we uh, anxiously watch the developments associated with that. Also involved in the maintenance and preservation is an organization known as the Friends of Pheasant Branch. Hans Hilbert is a co-president of the group, which was founded in 1995 as part of an effort to campaign against the proposed construction by the city of Middleton of two sewer lines under the Conservancy's grounds. And they basically formed to advocate against that. And long story short is that they uh, reached an unhappy compromise where only one sewer line was put in. So that's on the west side of the Conservancy. If you're walking there and the, you're on the trail, that sewer line is underneath your feet. The group's present-day missions are to protect, restore, and promote the Conservancy. And we kind of break that into a few areas as an organization. Uh, restoration, which I just mentioned, as well as uh, education and accessibility and use. And then uh, we do continue our work with advocacy for the Conservancy and the watershed. The product of their work, along with that of the state, city, and county, is a spectacular nature destination with enough paths that multiple visits are required to take in all that the Pheasant Branch Conservancy has to offer. Be sure to tune in next week for another edition of Trail Tuesday. For now, reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. What makes birds so majestically colorful? What's responsible for their rich hues of blues, greens, purples, and other colors? On this edition of Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg tells us about bird patterns and colors and what's responsible for feather pigmentation. This conversation is sparked by a new guest at the Dane County Humane Society, a baby pink northern cardinal.
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about bird pigments in their feather structure. And I'm talking about this today because we've had a really high number of very interesting birds come into the Wildlife Center that have abnormal pigmentation. And by that, I mean different melanin deficiencies, which melanin is a type of coloration group. So a pigment coloration, you could have either carotenoids, melanins, or porphyrins that are in birds. And I'll talk about each of those here in a minute. But we've had a little northern cardinal who's been the absolute cutest little fledgling that came in with some really abnormal feather shaft growth. And although he was at the right age to fledge the nest, he was actually not able to fly away um, in an appropriate manner because his feathers were still in the pins or have a feather shaft around them that were abnormally too long. Also, as some really interesting colorations on the wing patches. And northern cardinals you probably think of as being bright red beautiful birds if they're males and maybe more of a brownish to dull orangish if they're females. Now with northern cardinals, you're not able to truly tell what sex they are based on their plumage differences until about their second year of life. And so for this little cardinal, you would think, well, we don't know if it's male or female, but it has these beautiful pink wing patches, which is very abnormal for a young fledgling cardinal. And by pink, I mean like light baby pink. Now this could be a different colorization and it could be a melanin deficiency. It could be a carotenoid, like a dietary deficiency, or it could be something else. It could be a form of albinism or leucism is something that we call when you have like white feathers or off colored, you know, mixes of some dark colors and some light colors that isn't the normal plumage. So I would consider it maybe a form of leucism or a change in their carotenoid diet, which again is going to be explained here in a moment, but carotenoids is usually the uh, pigments that they get from what they eat. So this northern cardinal, super, super cute. This one is a type of species that does require carotenoids to be able to get that beautiful red coloration. And carotenoids are produced by plants, and it's either by eating those plants or by eating something that has eaten a plant. And so in the case of cardinals that are omnivorous, it's definitely going to be more the plant material. But these carotenoids are also responsible for like different colors of yellows and orangish. And so goldfinches are another common one that we think of that change throughout the year that get these beautiful bright yellow plumages during the breeding season. And then yellow warblers are another example. And if you've ever seen a Blackburnian warbler, I love those. They have this beautiful orange throat if they're males. They can actually have this combination effect where carotenoids can interact with melanins. And again, melanins, you probably have heard before because we have melanins in our skin as humans. If you have like a pale skin color or just a darker, the darker, more exposure to UV light causes the skin to darken. Uh, it's in our hair, in our nails, in our skin. It's in a lot of different places, but it's important for structure of the skin. Now, melanins in birds are actually more important for uh, not only that dark coloration, anywhere from dark black to brown uh, to some yellowish colors, but it's also really important for sturdy stability structure in those feathers. So the darker the feather, the actually the stronger that it is. So that's another one that I was thinking of because we also had an American crow fledgling come in and it was the neatest thing because I don't believe I've ever seen it personally in our rehabilitation center in an American crow, but it actually had some white feathers, like half of the feathers were white. From the base of the feather, 
to about maybe a third of the way towards the end, it was black. And then there was a beautiful white patch in the middle of all these primaries and secondaries. And then the feather ended in black. So it was like there was a big gap, kind of like um, a wing patch on a mallard. If you've ever seen a mallard duck, when they have that purple square patch, and then it's surrounded by like other colorations, like white. Um, it was very similar to that in a way that was very strange. So like a big block of white feathers in the middle of black feathers for this crow. You know, the feather structure and quality was reduced in this case, but it's also something that can naturally happen a lot of times through genetics. And so melanins are usually these little granules of color that are in the skin and the feathers. And depending on where they're located and concentrated, it can really change the darkness. Um, so these feathers were probably pretty weak, but it doesn't mean that they wouldn't molt them out later. Birds go through a molt before they would be able to migrate, for example. So this bird was still in its first plumage, meaning the preformative molt. And then eventually, before they would go, you know, with their parents in the fall to somewhere different, migrating in like September, August, sometimes early August, sometimes July, uh, but more in like the September, October months, that's when they should be, you know, molting out a good number of their baby feathers to have their first pre-basic molts. So hopefully those feathers might molt out and might just be all black at that point, but it's hard to say if it's got a genetic component that will be called a leucism in that type of bird. The other pigment group, because, you know, talking about two patients in our care that have probably some uh, carotenoid changes or also have a leucism and a melanin type of abnormality, porphyrins are the third pigment group in bird feathers, and that's from modifying amino acids. So there's a certain amino acid that causes porphyrins to be present, and it actually produces a range of colors like pink, and we like to use UV light to fluoresce those feathers to be able to age those birds in rehabilitation. So it's pretty cool. It's usually our owl species. Pigeons have some and also gallinaceous species. Other things to talk about is just the structure of the feather is really amazing. <laughs> Most of the feathers of birds, if it's iridescent feathers or if it's blue feathers, it's all structural. So the way the feathers are intertwined, the barbs and the barbules that make up the feathers, which are really itty bitty and you can see under a microscope, scatter the different light and refract it. So whether it is uh, iridescent, which would change based on the number of um, layers of keratin cortex that you have, and then the melanin in between, that can be something like our hummingbird, ruby-throated hummingbird feathers in the throat, which cause it to change as you have a different viewing angle. Or you have something like our blue jays or our indigo buntings or bluebirds that have air in between, which scatters the light and then causes it to just be blue. So there's no blue structure in feathers except for things that scatter light, and it is so cool. And so bird feathers are basically very diverse, they're very amazing, and sometimes you see some really strange abnormalities, like in our patients we've had this week. I thought I would share just a couple of those cases, our little northern cardinal with carotenoid changes. We've got our American crow that was successfully reunited with its family that had some leucistic tendencies and probably some changes in the melanin. And then we also can see things like iridescent feathers and lots of birds with blue feathers. So if you get the chance, check out the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's uh, explanation about the different types of colors and pigments that are in bird feathers. And otherwise know that sometimes that can be a natural thing. And every once in a while you get a bird into a rehab center or in research that has that type of abnormality and they can still survive and still works for them. And I think it's really cool. <laughs> it makes it more variety. 
And again, if you ever find an animal and you're not sure what's wrong with it or if there is something wrong, you know, are they sick, injured, orphaned, or maybe just have a really cool feather, <laughs> give us a call at the Wildlife Center at Dane County Humane Society. Our phone number is 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Reed Kamai and Jackie Sandberg. Super Dave engineered Florence had got the news on the air. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And thanks to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. You make it happen. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night. Throw in news, we can cure the blues.